You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 2. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dylan Brown. How are you doing today? Great, man. How's it going for you? It's good, man. We're in uh, into December here. It's a nice winter weather in Raleigh, North Carolina. Winter for us is like 55 degrees. I know that's a different world from where, where oh, you yeah. are. Yeah, no, here. same here, man. No, except you put the minus sign before it, but <laughs> otherwise the same. <laughs> well, say, yeah, you guys are like getting the, the inside of your houses turn white with the frost, I believe. That's insane. <laughs> I think we've talked about this. I hope that we haven't talked about it on this episode, but that's how it is in my old house. I mean, it, the original windows, they'll frost over on the inside. You can like draw on them with your fingernail. It's pretty sweet. It's a nice feature. It was probably one of the selling points. So. A nice feature. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you recently bought a new toy. So tell our listeners a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so maybe it's to escape the winter. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it might turn into that, be a little snowbird, but it's a Class B motorhome. It's like one of those short buses where it's just like, uh, it, it's not a whole, you know, bus per se. It's just like a van, but that's been converted. So it's got the bathroom, it's got the AC, the kitchen, the burners, and the water tank. So it's going to be like luxury living, but. It's from the late 80s, so it's got the brown shag carpet. It's all original, you know, perfect condition. We bought it from some old person who kept it inside since they bought it in 1987. <laughs> so it's literally, so you, you don't find them like that anymore. Are you like rehabbing it or what, what are your plans with it? Definitely, definitely. So we're going to let the brown shag carpet go. Um, I got some designs. I wish I could show you them right now, but basically we're making it open concept, which sounds funny because we're talking about an RV, right? But you know, no, we're, wait, we're, aren't they already <laughs> open concept? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So the bathroom itself is like on the side and it like the, the, the bathroom's going to be open concept? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Hey, honey. To be honest with you, yeah, more, <laughs> more counter space and, and you know, whitewash. It's going to be millennial gray. It's going to be we're going to have the Starlink on top. We're nice. going to have the solar shower, everything. So, nice. I mean, we got such a good deal. We were budgeting, you know, four times what we ended up paying for this thing. So that just means we have all that money left over to uh, pimp it out, if you will. So Good for you, man. Good for you. So you guys are going to take it on the road. Well, what's the first place you want to travel to with it? We're a little bit disagreement on that, me and my wife, Gina. So I, I, I want to take it straight north. I want to go straight to Alaska. And she wants to go straight south to Atlanta, Georgia to visit her brother. So, of course, we're going to go to Atlanta. But uh, one will dream. <laughs> yeah, you will. Dream. <laughs> yeah, good, smart move, sir. Smart move. <laughs> so, Atlanta, yeah, Georgia exactly. bound. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, we're going to have to ask you. Uh, I'm going to have to remember to ask you about that here in a couple of months. Give our listeners a little update on what the progress looks like. I think that's. Uh, oh, we're, that's we'll, really cool. we'll put a recording studio in there, too, just for that purpose. We'll, we'll be good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, the shag carpet would have been great for the uh, the audio, you know, just like dampening everything. Yeah, I bet I better make anyway. that pitch to Gina. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move to our CPA insights section and we're going to talk about the Corporate Transparency Act. So if you've been on social media at all, you've probably seen this, especially on like TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. The Corporate Transparency Act is coming into play January 2024. And basically what the act is requiring is if you have an LLC or an entity, I should say, then you have to file a beneficial ownership interest report 
with FinCEN. FinCEN is the Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network. If you have any sort of um, like offshore bank accounts, you have to file an FBAR report with FinCEN. So it's the same sort of thing. So it's a BOI report. And basically it says who owns the entity. But the interesting thing, it's not just direct ownership, it's also indirect ownership. So there's still some questions on what exactly needs to show up on that report. And I believe as we're recording this, it was just middle of December, we don't actually have a report yet that right. we can reference. Like there's no template readily available, nope. but really important for everybody listening to this, because most people listening to this, if not everybody listening to this, has LLCs and entities that will fall under these new rules. So the rules are, if you have an LLC already open or an entity already open, uh, you have until January 1st, 2025 to file the BOI report. And I believe actually there was recently an extension. I don't know if it was an extension on current entities. I think it was an extension on new entities opened in 2024. So if you have an entity opened before 1231, 2023, you have until, I believe, January 1st, 2025 to yeah. file this report. So you've got a whole year. But if you open any entities in 2024, you have the rules say you have 30 days to file this report. And I believe there was a recent amendment that was like a temporary thing that allows you 60 days to file the report instead of 30 days. I believe that's true. Uh, so don't quote me on that. But Regardless, the rules say 30 days from the date that you open the entity, you have to file this BOI report. And if you don't file the BOI report, then you are subject to a $500 per day penalty. And I believe the maximum penalty is $10,000. So it's extremely expensive to not file this report. Uh, so if you have entities, you most likely have to file the support and you need to do it within 30 days of opening the entity, assuming that you open the entity in January, 2024 or beyond. If you already have the entity open, you have until January 1st, 2025 to file that report. There are exceptions to the rule. I'm not gonna go over any of the exceptions, but there are exceptions to the rule that yep. enable you to not have to file the report. So get with your attorney on it. There's a lot of questions on whether or not accountants can or should be filing these reports on behalf of their clients. It is a state-by-state -state issue. State bar associations are coming out and saying that if accountants or anybody is filing these reports on behalf of their clients, it's called UPL, Unlicensed Practice of Law. So you can check with your accountants, but most likely you're gonna be working with your attorneys on getting these reports filed. Yeah, I just looked it up, Brandon, because your comment about the potential extension. So I, it looks like as of November 29th, we do see the Treasury's Financial Crime and Enforcement Network, FinCEN, they issued a final rule that extended the deadline. So this only applies to people who have created and registered an entity after the start of 2024. They actually do have 90 days instead of 30 days now, I believe. Is 90 the new, days. Is new, yeah, 90 days. But the general rule is still 30 days. So if you're listening to this and it's 2025, forget anything about 90 days. It's 30 days in any scenario after that point. So. Awesome. Thank you very much for clarifying. So yeah, yep. you, you just have to make this part of your entity setup process going forward. Ideally, your attorneys are already on it, but if they're not, make sure that you touch base with them and get a plan in place to file these BOI reports. Because like we said, it'll be very expensive if you don't. So with that, let's move into the meat of our episode. We're going to be talking about depreciation and how it impacts general partners in syndicated deals, real estate funds, 
So what I want to ask first is what is general partner depreciation? Like when we talk about depreciation for general partners, what are we even talking about? Well, I think the helpful thing is I'd say most listeners at this stage of the game, if you're investing in real estate, you're aware of depreciation, you're aware of the benefits to you, right? It's just the recapture of some of the cost of your purchase of an asset over time as opposed to all on the, on the first day that you purchased it, right? And I think most of the listeners here, when they think of depreciation, they think of it being one of the biggest benefits of them investing in real estate, right? Especially if somebody has a real estate professional status, especially when you're just starting out, maybe you own all of the properties that you're investing in, or you have a couple a couple partners, but it's not kind of that syndication structure that we sometimes think about. You know, depreciation goes a long ways to offsetting some of that taxable income that you might have, especially if it's from other sources, if you're a materially participating real estate professional. So to Brandon's question, what is GP depreciation? Why is that different than just depreciation? And this is really a term that we've kind of coined to discuss the idea of allocating depreciation from a syndication to somebody who didn't put in capital, the GP. That's what really what we're talking about. So think of a scenario where I am the GP and Brandon is an LP and he contributes a whole boatload of cash and we together buy a property. And I think that in some way, shape or form, I can modify the operating agreement to give myself some depreciation benefit. That's what we're talking about in that scenario where I didn't contribute any of the money. So we know a lot of GPs do contribute capital and they would receive depreciation just like any other LP in that scenario. So that's not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the specific breed of depreciation, which is almost like written into the operating agreement. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. And we were kind of talking a little bit before we pressed record and you brought up a really good point as to why this is even like a discussion topic anyway. And right. and, and I want you to talk a little bit about that because you basically said, you know, people are coming from deals where they're doing it themselves and this isn't an issue to now doing large deals where they're, they may not be putting in capital. So can you shed some light on that? Like, why would this be, why would this be an issue anyway? Yeah. Okay. Let's break it down a little bit. So I'm going to use a simple scenario. Let's say I'm used to buying single family homes as rentals, or we could even say multifamily, you know, apartments, you know, eight, 10, 12, 20 units, whatever. Something where I've just been doing this my whole real estate career up to this point. And I know a lot of people have partners, but let's just say, for example, it's me all on my own. I got my own LLC, 100%, right? And I'm not necessarily putting up a million bucks to buy a million dollar apartment building per se, but let's say I'm putting down like a $200,000 down payment and I'm going to the bank and I'm getting the the other 800,000 funded there. I'm so used to at this point saying, okay, a million dollar apartment building, you break out a portion for land. There's a huge chunk of that million bucks that I can take and depreciate over 27 and a half years or using a cost seg study sometimes a lot sooner, right? With bonus depreciation, we're not gonna get necessarily too into that, right? But I'm so used to being able to take that and offset my income that I have from like rents and it'll just flow with all of my other expenses. So if I'm a materially participating real estate professional, like a lot of our GPs that we're talking to are, I think, man, this property is going to kick off a huge loss. And more often than not, it does. I can use that to offset my other sources of income. W2, you know, if it's dividends and interest or if it's, you know, if I'm selling other deals or if I'm getting acquisition fees other places, right? I'm so used to that. And that's typically true for our clients, right? And so there's this shock when the first time they go to do a syndication 
And in our example, I'm just going to add some numbers. So Brandon's bringing a million bucks and I'm bringing zero dollars, but I get, let's say I get half of the upside, right? Let's say, let's say after Brandon gets his million bucks back, after we sell this thing down the road, I get half of the upside. So the operating agreement, it looks like we're 50, 50 owners, obviously with him putting up all the capital, right? Uh, A lot of people, when they're new to it, they might see that in a very narrow lens and say 50, 50 owners, therefore taxable income. And therefore, the depreciation should go 50-50. So if, if that property was going to kick off, let's say, $200,000 of losses in the first year, it makes perfect sense why my gut instinct would be to say, hey, Brandon gets $100,000 a loss. I get $100,000 a loss. I'm a materially participating real estate professional. Therefore, that $100,000 loss is going to go to offset all this other income that I got. It's, it's, it's just like I'm used to. So that's what I mean when I kind of draw the link and say that this, is, this can sometimes... GP depreciation being treated a little bit differently comes to a bit of a surprise to somebody who kind of has that that old regiment in mind, right? So that's interesting, right? Because I'm used to getting all that depreciation, but now who's getting it? Brandon's getting all that depreciation in this example? Well, typically, yes, right? On the face level, we're going to see that the allocations of all items of income and loss, you know, which includes depreciation in a partnership context, which we'll dive into a little bit more of the nuance there. But generally speaking, it's going to follow the cash first, right? So if we're ignoring debt for a second and we're just saying, you know, your million bucks was contributed and we bought a million dollar property, all of the tax losses are going to be allocated to you to begin until your quote unquote capital account is reduced down to a point where it's at zero. So in this example, that'd be very hard to do, right? Because we don't have a lot of debt involved. So I know I'm bringing in a lot of different concepts. We can we can kind of meld them together here. Yeah. But generally speaking, I think people are generally familiar with the concept of having a capital account where Brandon's capital account, after making that contribution of a million bucks, you know, it's a million dollar capital account. And that's where his losses are going to be applied to. And there's this whole concept around partnership allocations that I think We'll make this a lot more clear once we start to dive into that here in this episode. So as the GP, if I've put zero dollars in, but I've got an LP that brought a million dollars to the table and we went and acquired this big property, basically the point that you're making is that you as the GP might not be entitled to all the depreciation that you think you are at first blush. Right, right. Yeah. So let's dive into this then. So I'm a GP. I put zero dollars in. I've got a million dollar LP investor just one LP investor, just keep it nice and simple. How do I get a share of the depreciation? That's a good question. So I'll tell you what people try to do first, and then I'll peel it back a little bit, and then we'll maybe walk through three different scenarios about maybe there is an instance where you could receive GP depreciation. Okay. Okay. So the first thing that people will try to do in that scenario is simple. It's okay. I know that a partnership is really flexible. Like that's a pretty commonly known thing for tax purposes. And if you don't know that, talk to your CPA about it. We can even dive into it a little bit, but generally partnerships are pretty flexible. So what you'll see is you'll see people who will write right into the partnership operating agreement, the LLC operating agreement, right? They will say everything kind of flows in accordance with capital contributed, except for depreciation. Depreciation, we want 50-50 to the GP and to the LP, right? You see that a lot. I'd say maybe 50% of the operating agreements that I review, I end up seeing something like that in the operating agreement. And the issue that arises is when we, we think about actually filing the tax return that way. You know, it's one thing to say it in the operating agreement, and it's another thing to actually have it come to fruition and be within the guidelines that the IRS and the Internal Revenue Code lays out for an acceptable allocation. Okay, so why wouldn't that be acceptable? 
Well, it comes to this whole concept of substantial economic effect, which I'm not going to try to get too into the weeds here. I can break it down into essentially meaning the allocations should follow the economic reality of the deal. So if you kind of think about this example of, you know, Brandon putting in a million bucks and me putting in zero, I don't have anything to lose. I put in nothing, really. You know, Brandon's the one on the hook for this entire loss. So we know for tax purposes, we're generating a $200,000 loss. But let's say that loss was materialized, like that loss came to fruition and it was a truly $200,000 economic loss. Well, logic would tell you that Brandon's out 200,000 bucks. He's only getting his 800,000 bucks back because that's the deal. He put in all the money. He's at risk, right? So what would give me the right then for tax purposes to incur $100,000 of those loss? And that's kind of the theory behind this, this mental switch that we have to make when we're thinking about GP depreciation. So that leads me into, okay, how could I get that depreciation if I was the GP? That answer I just give should kind of allude to the ways that you would be able to get that when you think about it in terms of substantial economic effect, which is, to reiterate, the allocations, they should match the reality. So let's talk about this then. There's three ways to do it, really, if you, if you simplify it. And the first is, quite frankly, a very obvious one. If I was the GP and I put in money, I mean, I'm economically on the hook right? Let's say, let's change the facts a little bit. Let's say I put in a hundred grand and he put in a million bucks, right? Or let's say 900,000 to keep the total still at a million, right? It would make sense then for me to get some of that depreciation. I'm still not going to get half of it, but I'll get, you know, 50% of it. Um, and, and there's some flexibility with that in the operating agreement, but generally speaking, that's one way that we could start. So does that make sense? Kind of way number one would be contributing capital. Yeah. So, so if I contribute capital, now we've got $1.1 million, the loss comes out, are we splitting that pro rata based on our capital accounts? Definitely. Yeah. So the way it would normally work, if we wanted to get into the minutia of you know the allocation, if it was written in such a way that my money was at risk before your money, then maybe the first amount of depreciation would go to me. So like, let's say the operating agreement said, all right, in your example, Brandon, there's 1.1 million bucks on the line, but I was a very generous GP or whatever. And I said, hey, you know, I'll bear the burden of the first $100,000 of loss if this thing goes south and I'll lose my money before you lose a penny, right? Well, that, that changes things a little bit because now we're saying the allocations should match that for tax purposes. If we're generating $200,000 of losses for tax purposes, well, then it's very justifiable that I should get the first 100,000 and then the remaining 100,000 should go to you. Because if that $200,000 materializes and we sell this property for 900,000 instead of the million one that we bought it for, I already agreed to you that I would I would take the $100,000 a loss. So you're really on the hook for losing the other 100,000. So you're still getting 900 grand back out of this deal. So if that's true, that's how the allocations would go for tax purposes. It brings us back to that concept of substantial economic effect. Okay. So that makes sense. So if I put money into the deal, I can be allocated some depreciation. Can I be specially allocated depreciation? So if I've put 100K in and I've got an LP with a, with a million, do I have to say I'll bear the first 100K or can I just specially allocate 100K to me? Yeah. If you're just specially allocating that to yourself, the risk that you're going to run into is that the IRS would look at that and say that it doesn't have economic effect because the allocation didn't match the economic reality. So the IRS would ask you, okay, you received that loss. So if you think about it in terms of capital accounts, like you, you had contributed $100,000 and you had received $100,000 of loss because that's half of the depreciation. So now your capital accounts back at zero. The IRS would say, well, the way that you made this allocation, it sure looks like if this thing was to sell for $900,000, you're entitled to nothing. Is that actually the case? And you'd say, well, no, 
that was just a tax item that we allocated. But if we actually go and sell this thing, no, I'm getting my money back or mm-hmm. I'm getting, you know, 90% of my money back or whatever, you know, we're sharing in the loss equally. That disconnect is what's going to open you up to risk in, in my experience. And that's what's ultimately they're going to be looking at. So, so how are syndicates then? I mean, you know, you, you've, you've seen it, they come up to their attorneys or they pull their CPAs in and they say, Hey, I've got, I'm raising a million, but 400 K is coming from IRA investors. How do I allocate depreciation away from them? What do you do in that case? Yeah, so that, that's a really tough question. Not tough in the sense that it's hard to answer, but there's a couple layers that there's a couple things happening at once. So when you have tax exempt people, we no longer just have the substantial economic test to follow. If we're determining if the allocation made by the partnership is up to snuff, if it would be passable by the IRS and the Internal Revenue Code, we have two. The other one is the fractions rule, which is actually a whole separate set of the Internal Revenue Code. It's going to be code section 514C. Nine cap E. So for all those tax nerds out there, you can go, you can go and look at what I'm talking about here. But the fractions rule, it's just these additional goalposts set up around if you have tax exempt entities that make up a certain percentage of the partnerships investors and you allocate items of loss away from them, it triggers this disallowance of those allocations because it, the, the language here is specifically reads. The allocation of items to any partner, which is a qualified organization, which includes self-directed IRAs and solo and 401ks, it includes all sorts of tax-exempt entities, they cannot result in that partner having a share of the overall partnership income for any taxable year greater than that partner's share of the overall partnership loss for a taxable year in which the partner's loss share was the smallest. So that's like a really interesting way of saying, sure, you could maybe make that allocation on the front end, but you have to pick it back up on the back end. And therefore, it was just a wash all along. You know what I'm saying? So it didn't actually achieve much along the way. I think from a logical perspective, you know, even though people might not want to hear it, it makes perfect sense, right? You can't come in with this tax advantageous account right. and only be allocated income and never be allocated losses. That, that exactly. doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. You are a partner in the, in the entity, right? In the business and the business, everybody wins together and loses together is kind of the idea. Exactly. exactly. Otherwise, you would really open yourself up to potential abuse, you know, or just opportunities for you. Right. And and remember, that's still only just half of the test, too. You still have to, if you can substantiate that, yes, our intention was to stick within 514C9E, right? We were going to, we were going to cross our T's and dot our I's and we're going to stay within the guidelines of that. You still have to substantiate that the allocations made to be able to do that in the interim, we're still having substantial economic effects. So like, let's say you did allocate all of that depreciation to let's say it was just in an extreme example, let's just say it was just one taxable partner and they made up only 10% of the investor pool. Because I've, I've actually seen that scenario, right? Uh, in that scenario where it was a, it was a large endowment, it was um, like a state pension fund essentially, and then there was a taxable partner who wanted to receive all that depreciation. All right, well, how are you going to solidify that? Okay, we, we passed 514. How are you going to solidify that allocation of loss would be substantiated if this loss materialized? And in fact, that one actually came to a head because the loss did materialize. This was, mm-hmm. there was a forced sale on the asset for reasons that we won't get into. Ultimately, the loss was realized. And in that case, it wasn't substantiated because quite frankly, the partner who was supposed to be bearing the loss of that. And we'll talk about this in our next example. This is actually a good segue because in this example, it was basically the partner's capital account going negative and they were, they were putting their name down saying, 
I will indemnify that tax exempt ah. partner against this loss, right? I will go so far as to say I'll recontribute capital to make sure I get this allocation. Well, that was all on paper, it turns out, because it's, this thing did go south. He didn't have a big enough personal balance sheet to be able to substantiate that. So that's ultimately what was the thing that that blew up this loss allocation. It was like some oh, interesting. So he said he said yeah. I'm going to indemnify, but then didn't actually have the capital to do it. He didn't actually have, I mean, the indemnity, the amount amounted to be like $4.7 million or something ridiculous, right? Of tax, not I mean, he got like an 18 or $19 million loss allocation. So obviously when it came to forking up the, the cash, it was, yeah, there was a lot at play, but that was an extreme example. So, so far we've talked about if you're just going to go into a deal and you're not putting any money in, you're not going to get allocated any depreciation which makes sense because you don't actually bear any risk of loss. If that were to come about, you would take money out of that LP account first. Then we've talked about, okay, you can add capital to the deal and now you can share yep. in the depreciation. You yep. might be able to say, I'll take the first 100K or whatever of risk and then you can be allocated depreciation first. Otherwise, yep. it's pro rata. And then we've now landed on, you know, you can't allocate loss away from your IRA investors as much as you would love to uh, right. because of a, a variety of different rules. But you mentioned something at the end there that that you can indemnify your limited partner's losses. So let's talk about that. because and, and this is where the deficit restoration obligation comes in or, or, or a yeah. draw if you are talking to your attorney or your accountant on that. And that's the term that they use. They'll, they'll typically just say draw. Um, so let's yeah. talk about that. How do you indemnify LP losses and how does that impact your ability to be allocated depreciation? So let's talk about what, first of all, a deficit restoration obligation is. It's a defined term in the Internal Revenue Code in the regs. It talks about it. Basically, there's this test for substantial economic effect that says, ultimately, if you make an allocation that results in your capital account being negative, but you execute a document, a bona fide document that is, you know, supportable, right? It, this is legit. You're, you're obligating yourself to this where though, yes, my capital account is negative, but if this loss was to materialize, I will physically take cash out of my own pocket and put it back into this deal to ultimately make whole on that loss and prevent the other people in this partnership who potentially might still have a positive capital account from, from realizing losses above and beyond what was factored into them and for, for tax purposes, right? That the, the simplest way I can describe it is basically saying um, you are generating a liability for yourself that ultimately puts you on the hook to make sure that other partners don't realize the loss that you want allocated to yourself, right? Um, so that's what a deficit restoration obligation is. All right. So what does that look like? Well, first of all, it's written into the operating agreement. It's something that every entity has an operating agreement or a limited partnership agreement. Uh, depending on what type of entity you're running. It'll have a specific provision within the the operating agreement that basically says, yes, a partner is on the hook for any deficit. Uh, more often than not, the boilerplate LLC agreements that attorneys are using nowadays, by the way, have a provision that says the exact opposite. They say a member of this LLC is not on the hook for the deficit. So that's one thing. Which that is the flip. entire purpose of an LLC. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. right. So it does go be, it goes a, a little bit backwards and against what an LLC even is, right? For legal purposes, which we're not lawyers, but I mean, if you really, if you look at it in the most 
basic essence. Um, interestingly enough, though, there are some entity types, depending on certain state laws, that actually create deficit restoration obligations just based on the state law, which is something I actually didn't know at, until recently. It was uh, if there's, you know, imagine a general partnership under a state law where it's it's a, a partner is legally bound to absorb all of the the losses or or the liabilities that are incurred by a partnership. Okay, well, there might be just a deficit restoration obligation just based on state law in that specific scenario. But ultimately, for it to be respected for tax purposes, it has to exist and be enforceable. And you have to be realistically able to make that payment. So it goes kind of back to that, that example we just had. If, if you indemnify a partner against an $18 million loss and your personal net worth is a million bucks, you're not going to be able to come up with the $18 million to basically refund the partnership and make the other partner whole. So that's the other part of the pie that we have to kind of remember. We don't see many droves because like you said, the attorneys are trying to limit everybody's liability. Uh, so mm-hmm. before you get excited about adding droves to your operating agreement, just realize that it exposes you to significant risk, which kind of defeats the purpose of the LLC structure as it is. Um, exactly. But that's definitely a way that you can share in the depreciation if you were to do that. But again, you even if you put zero money in and you have a dro, you are now putting yourself at real economic loss risk. Uh, so exactly. that's why you get to get to share. All right. Um, now, I know we're going to talk about debt in a second, but since we're on the topic of liability, if I personally guarantee loans, actually, I guess we'll just move right into debt now. So if I personally guarantee the loan and my LPs don't, uh, so this is full recourse against me. Can I share in the yeah. depreciation? That answer is it depends, right? So imagine imagine a scenario where we're going to take your example and we're going to call it $10 million building this time. And we're going to say, you're the LP and you brought in 5 million bucks, but I'm the GP and I went out and found a $5 million loan to bridge the gap. And I personally guaranteed it. Okay. That's the new, that's the new example. And so in a scenario where there was let's call it $2 million of tax losses, mostly driven by depreciation, right? We know that we had a $10 million building, we're generating $2 million of losses. So the ultimate tax basis in that building after it's said and done is now $8 million, right? So if you think about it in terms of equity, we started with $5 million of equity, right? The $10 million asset less the $5 million of debt. But what's left after that loss is allocated is still $3 million of positive equity. So Basically, what that means is if this building sold for a $2 million loss, there's still $3 million of investor capital that is there to, to be returned to the investor. And there's $8 million of value to pay back the $5 million loan, right? So even though I have a personal guarantee, the bank's not going to come after me for that $5 million bucks because the, the property itself, the sale of the property itself is going to satisfy that $5 million. And there's still going to be $3 million to give back to Brandon. So Yes, I do have a personal liability if this thing goes south and the bank can't make whole on their on their loan. I would have to make up the difference. But the fact of the matter is the losses still go first to the LP because they're still going to be the one realistically economically on the hook for the first five million dollars of loss. Yeah. So, I mean, you, your, your building would have to be sold for four million in this example. So the equity is totally wiped out. And now the lender is tapping you for an extra million dollars. Right. So I can't make that case to the IRS that, hey, like, since I've personally guaranteed this, I should be allocated some depreciation. Like, what, what if, what if I 
do eventually sell the property for four million. How do you reconcile that at the beginning when you're preparing tax returns? Okay, well, the the example where you sell it for four million bucks is an extreme one, but let me let me give you a more realistic example of one where I've actually seen. Right, so let's say that this is a much more highly leveraged property. And we're in an era with extremely high bonus appreciation, which is actually something we're just coming out of. This is a very realistic scenario that we see a lot with our clients. So the, uh, the scenario now that I'm proposing, and let's say we only had, you know, 20% or 80% loan to value, which is great terms for most of our listeners, right? So I'm only putting down 20% of the equity. So let's say I, and by I, I mean Brandon, because I'm coming with no money. I'm the GP, remember? So Brandon is putting down 2 million bucks. And the other 8 million is funded by a loan, a fully recourse loan to me at that. But because we're in a really great time of bonus depreciation, this property had a lot of bonus eligible property within it in the purchase price. We actually find that it's going to generate $3 million of losses, right? So the tax basis at the end of the year is going to be less than the overall loan outstanding. So you think about it, that's negative equity. That is truly negative equity. So in that scenario, if we were to realize that $3 million loss on our $2 million equity, it goes back to the same the same mental exercise we've been talking about this entire episode of saying, who's going to bear the burden of that loss, right? Well, we know that Brandon is out his $2 million, right? We know that off the bat, it's a negative equity. He's not getting that back. That's something we're all familiar with as real estate investors. It makes perfect sense. And then I, you know, if there's still that million dollar deficit between the $7 million firm record value that the bank is ultimately going to be able to get for the property and the $8 million loan, I'm on the hook for the other million because I guaranteed it. So in that scenario, it's very, it makes perfect logical sense that I would have received a million dollars of that $3 million tax loss because I'm actually on the hook. And it wouldn't be split between me and Brandon. It would go entirely to me as the guarantor. Whereas if it was non-recourse, that we might be talking about a different scenario. But since I'm the guarantor, that's kind of the third way that we're going to talk about here is to the extent that you generate more losses than initial equity contributed and that you're the guarantor of the loan, you're able to basically take 100% of that depreciation or those tax losses above and beyond the capital contributed in those specific scenarios for that very reason. It matches the economic reality. Love it. All right. Well, now let's talk about non-recourse. And one thing that I want you to address with non-recourse is every once in a while, I see feedback from just the real estate community at large about how um, their accountants say that non-recourse debt does not give you basis to take losses. So I'd love to know from you. <laughs> I'd love to know from you. Um, you know, non-recourse, qualified non-recourse. What the heck does do all these terms mean? And let's use your same example: ten million dollars. I come to the table with two. We generate a tax loss of three million thanks to all the bonus depreciation. The first two million goes straight to me. Who gets the extra $1 million if we have a non-recourse loan on the property? Okay, well, now you're asking for a free master's in business taxation course, and I guess this is what you're going to get out of it. No, I'm just kidding. So let's, let's break it down into two pieces. I'm going to answer the example question second, but first just give you some brief overview of the terms that you just mentioned, which is recourse, qualified non-recourse, and then just non-recourse. These are all different ways that we can classify partnership debt. And then what the heck are we even talking about partnership basis? I mean, you're right. I hear that a lot too. It's a little bit simplified. So let's dive into it a little bit. So first, let's understand what somebody's basis in a partnership is. The basis in the partnership that you own is whatever you contributed to that partnership in cash or property, plus 
all of the liabilities, whatever type they are, that are allocated to you. And by allocated to you, I just mean that you're on the hook for, right? So if it's non-recourse and the loan agreements are written that everybody's on the hook for this loan, or nobody's on the hook for this loan, rather, and it's simply just secured by the property, then it's just kind of, it's allocated based on everybody's ownership in the property. So in that scenario, maybe the partnership agreement is written that I'm 10% owner of the property, and I have 10% of the liabilities allocated to me as the GP, regardless of the fact that I put in no money, right? So you could think of my basis as still being positive because there's some liabilities allocated to me. What people get tripped up on, to your comment, Brandon, is the difference between basis and at-risk basis. So there is a type of liability, non-recourse liabilities, that don't count towards your at-risk basis, which often gets construed a little bit and misinterpreted by a lot of clients. But what we find is that truly non-recourse loans are a very minor part of the overall loan stack of a partnership because we have what's called qualified non-recourse. And qualified non-recourse just means that it secures a partnership asset like a, like a mortgage would in our scenario. So uh, basically qualified non-recourse will always count towards your basis. It'll always count towards your at-risk basis. So the listeners, basically the key takeaway from what I just said is that to the extent that your loan is secured by the property owned by the partnership in some degree, whether or not it's guaranteed, it's going to count towards your partnership basis, right? And because of that fact. So, okay. So to answer the second part of that question, back to the example of a $10 million building with a $8 million loan, but we still have to deal with a $3 million loss allocation. However, this time around, I'm not guaranteeing it. It's just a qualified non-recourse as we just defined it now. Uh, just basically the only thing securing the loan is the property itself. Um, first of all, thank you, bank. That was very generous of you. Second of all, the same thing is going to be true about the first $2 million because in either scenario, Brandon's $2 million is kaput. It's gone because basically this thing's underwater. Everybody knows what that looks like. That's a very familiar understanding. It's for like real estate 101. So it makes sense that the first $2 million of loss goes to Brandon. So then the question is, how does that last million dollars get allocated and why it if it's different, why is it different versus the guaranteed versus this scenario? So neither of us are actually on the hook for that million dollars if you think about it. That's the thing that's different. In the scenario where I was guaranteeing it, I was on the hook for it, therefore it should all go to me. But neither of us are really on the hook for it. So it's kind of like a freebie to us if you think about it that way. Like we're like, oh, thank goodness we weren't on the hook for that million bucks. So because we already allocated the $3 million of loss, but we're not on the hook for $2 million of it, we still have to allocate that $3 million somewhere. But when this thing all winds up, there's actually going to be a million dollar gain because we didn't we didn't have to realize that loss we got allocated just a second ago. What they make us do is they make us allocate it in such a way so that it's called minimum gain chargeback or like non-recourse minimum gain, non-recourse deductions. There's a lot of terms and they start to become like this muddy pool of tax terms that nobody really needs to know unless you're in the minutia of tax law. But basically the long story short is that those deductions now just follow pro rata, generally speaking. And by pro rata, I mean, it, it follows the ownership percentage or even just the general capital contributions. And there is actually some ability to determine how that goes in the operating agreement. In fact, I'll be the first to admit that I've heard so many conflicting opinions on how that, that million dollars of loss can be allocated that sometimes I question it myself. But the, the answer that I can always fall back to is, uh, I know it's safe to allocate it based on capital contribution. So in that case, it would still be allocated to Brandon. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so if we generate loss in excess of the capital contributions of our LPs, 
then we potentially have the ability to share in that loss as the GPs. Yes, yes. To the degree yeah. that e- either we're guaranteeing it or we have ran it by our uh, attorney and our accountant and the way it's written in the operating agreement is up to snuff. And like I said, it gets into the minutia of people's deferring opinions on what it's uh-huh. called non-recourse deductions. That little million bucks sliver is called a non-recourse deduction. Like how can you legally allocate that? I mean, you still see people arguing on LinkedIn to this day about what you can do about that allocation. So. <laughs> Surprise people argue on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's such a happy place. Uh, all right. So the Twitter is where all the, 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 the arguments go down. Um, all right. So all this has been really great. Um, you know, somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, that was a lot of, I mean, that was meaty, right? There was a lot of, a lot of information right. in there. <laughs> so they're listening to this and like, yeah, I'm not sure if my accountant said this or not. What should they do? That's a great question. The easiest thing you can do is just go ahead and reach out. We're always open to finding the facts, taking a call from you, and just learning a little bit about the situation. And if it comes to it, even hopping on the phone with whoever may have given you that advice initially, just to kind of clear the air and understand exactly, you know, a lot of things get lost in translation. So to do that, you can reach out to us via the realestatecpa.com forward slash MLRE, or you can even email me directly, which is going to be dylan.brown at hallcpallc.com. Yep. So there you go, folks. So Dylan is, and I guess I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but if you've stuck with us this far, Dylan's obviously a pretty bright person because he just walked us through all of that. He's on our private equity tax team. So this is a tax team that we've built here at the firm that specifically works with sponsors of syndications and real estate funds, real estate syndications and funds. So you can hit him up at dylan.brown at hallcpallc.com. You can also check us out at therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE, MLRE for Major League Real Estate uh, podcast. And uh, if you can't get in touch in either one of those areas, or if you're struggling, you can just email me as well. Uh, my email is brandon.hall at hallcpallc.com. And I want to leave you with this one last piece of advice. And I know Dylan's going to agree with this. You can avoid a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion by looping in your CPA during the operating agreement structuring process. So before you go out and raise capital, our most successful clients are pulling us in on day one. When they have the attorneys drafting these operating agreements, we're working with them. We're collaborating on the the tax piece of those operating agreements. The worst thing that can possibly happen is we get to preparing your tax return. We send it to you on March 10th. And you know, you've got 200 K1s that you've got to review and you're going through it and you go, man, depreciation's not being allocated correctly. That's the reply to us, to us sending the return, right? Hey, hey, Dylan, you guys didn't do this right. And Dylan goes, well, right. no, this, is, this is how it has to be done. Your operating agreement was wrong or it needs to change or you need to amend it and have all 200 of your investors sign it within the next five days. Or better yet, it, it, it said it. It said it already and you just didn't read it. You didn't know. Or that, yeah, yeah. So just, yeah. just don't let that person be you. Um, you're playing with other people's money and you need, to, you need to get the tax piece looked at. And I think it's something that a lot of first-time sponsors tend to overlook because they think that they're covered from the attorney perspective when those operating agreements are being drafted. So, so loop the CPA in early, whether it's us or whether you have, there's a lot of brilliant CPAs out there that do this stuff. So 
get them involved early in the process so that you understand what that expectation is on those depreciation allocations. And so that you or worse, your investors are not surprised when they get those K-1s in March. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.